become a lot less sinister and more opportunistic for artists and you know people who own these pieces of of the creative work to go out there and earn earn more on what has been existed for a lot of years and it's not just taking a lot of these artists for a ride it's not trying to swindle them it's actually beneficial to them in a residual way our guest this week is jack foreman president of bicoastal productions bicoastal is a booking agency working with acts like colin mockery scotland's red hot chili pipers the daily show writers comedy tour and tons more Jack joins us to discuss the state of the industry today and how the live performance world is adjusting to the new normal of the COVID-19 pandemic on this episode of The Big Break. All right, Jack. Hey, listen, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's good to be here. Where are you? Uh, where, where are you calling us from? I'm actually calling you from the Jersey Shore. My uh, office is in New York City, but uh, I live down here, and it's been a nice place to quarantine. You know, I, I we have some folks at our um, our PR agency, uh, and she she uh, the, our direct contact. Uh, she obviously they would work in Brooklyn normally, but she's been at her folks' place and uh, literally goes to the shore every afternoon. So, uh, yeah. as, as as a mountain based guy, a little jealous. Yeah, actually, I'm jealous of you. I, um, I'm, I'm from the Midwest originally, but I've always been uh, attracted to mountains and my brother lives out in Boulder. So I, uh, oh, I'm really? more envious of you. Yeah. Where, where, where in the Midwest? I'm from Wisconsin originally, but uh, no, wait, where? in a um, little town called Mequon outside of Milwaukee. Okay. I'm from Kenosha. No way. <laughs> <laughs> That's Look twice that. now. That's yeah. literally two podcasts in a row where the person I was talking to was like 45 minutes from where I grew up. Really? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I was just on. I was just telling my wife last night because we were on TikTok, of course, stuck in stuck in bed on TikTok, unable to fall asleep. And she was something came up about the Mars Cheese Castle, and I was like, "Oh, (laughs) you wouldn't know about that, but people in Wisconsin, especially Kenosha, know exactly what that is." Oh yeah, fast by all the time. Okay, so this is like right away we're off track, which I love. I love getting off track off the bat. So (laughs) I got to tell you, so the first time I took my wife, who's from LA, to uh, Wisconsin, we drive. We got to go to the Mars Cheese Castle, and we get there. We get out of the car. We start to walk, and she stops. She's like, "Wait a minute." It's not made out of cheese? Yeah. <laughs> so she literally thought the Mars Cheese Castle was going to be made out of cheese, which I, I mean, she'll kill me for talking talk about this publicly, but um, it, it was hilarious. Yeah. So anyway, good old Wisconsin. Okay. So what, uh, so, you, so you're uh, New York, uh, you're in Jersey, and this is a little, just to kind of set things up for what we're talking about, it's a little bit of a departure, but let, let's talk a little bit about the early years for you. I mean, you are, you're, I'm not sure what the best way of playing this. Your booking agent, is that the best way to, to, to define what you what your role is now yeah yeah I, okay. I run an agency out here and we we have a roster of artists that we uh, book shows for and help tour and develop um, in markets around the world right and so you're you're most of the people we talk to on the show are, are artists songwriters performers and whatnot um, I'm just curious I've been in the music business for for a while a lot of folks in your role and other roles that are more what I would call like sort of the infrastructure of the music business many at one point early in their lives aspired to be an artist themselves was that you did you at any point aspire to write perform etc no I always knew that my my the, the place where I was best was either backstage or in front of the stage watching I just I never really uh, as much as I would have loved to have had a musical talent I uh, was able to accept and surrender early on to knowing that uh, that was just not my my bag, but I always loved the business. I was always fascinated by it growing up and seeing 
Um, seeing it at a localized level in Wisconsin, sure. But, um, you know, going to school in Chicago and working at the Windage Agency as a student was really what solidified it for me. All right. Great, great. So then, so let's, let's get, dig, dig, dig into that just a little bit first. Like, mm-hmm. when did you first get attracted to, I don't want to say the music business, I want to say music first. Like, you know, I'm just trying to get a sense of how you decided to make music your career even particularly if you weren't on the creative side of it like what was the what was the initial attraction that sort of thing I, I think ever since high school and ever since I started going to just tons and tons of concerts, I was always finding myself more fascinated with what was happening around the stage rather than was on it. I mean, I'm an avid, avid music fan and I love a great show. But in addition to that, I was just always wondering what was going on tech wise, how things ended up routed, especially in a place like Wisconsin, which, as you and I both know, is a secondary market to Chicago, you know, with if. if somebody's coming through, they've probably just come from Chicago or they're on their way there. But I, I've always been fascinated with how the show happens. And then in college, I ended up spending a year abroad in uh, Israel. And I, I worked, you know, just here and there doing some small time promotion, things like that. But I was just always fascinated with shows out there too, because you could really see a lot more of the nuts and bolts with the music that was happening out there. And they have a really diverse and rich music and touring industry over there in the Middle East, especially. And coming back to Chicago and spending a semester in New York, I just, I was constantly fascinated with what actually happened to make the show and to make the recordings. And, you know, as you start learning about music and music business in college, the first thing they are obviously going to teach you about is publishing and royalties and things like that and performance rights. But I always was just very drawn to the live aspect, how live music got to the stage from the bedroom, if you will. Um, you know, that's really where it started for me. So now, and did you, what did you study in school? Were you studying music specific? Yeah, it was music. It was arts, arts, entertainment and media management at uh, my school. I went to Columbia college in Chicago and basically their program goes heavy on music publishing, art and business of recording and stuff like that. But I chose more and more of the live path and, I ended up building on that with lots and lots of internships, anything I get my hands on. But if you go into that heavy, there's a good chance that you're going to be very involved in publishing, um, maybe even want to go to law school afterwards, which absolutely did not appeal to me. (laughs) You know, I mean, as much as important as it is to know your rights and know your laws as a musician or as a manager, it just wasn't the right thing for me. So why is that? Like, why? So if I heard you correctly, if you're going into any kind of, you know, sort of music related coursework, uh, you know, at a university level, you mentioned publishing was, was pretty heavy mm-hmm. up, up from the start, which is interesting because particularly since you're more on the live side, um, that seems to be less of a, I mean, it's still, it's still obviously present. It's present. It's, it's a sort of an underlying foundational component of all, uh, components of the music business. But, um, I'm just kind of wondering why that, you know, why that was and how did you first respond to, to, to that? And why would you need to go to law school? I mean, I get there's laws involved, but it's, 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 it's not like there's, there's a bunch of other stuff. I mean, publishing has its own little space, it feels like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think nowadays it's actually gotten less and less, um, where, you know, where you have to go to law school. And in the old days, you actually couldn't get a job at an agency without having gone to law school. Uh, when because you say agency, of, do you mean like even a live booking agency? Yeah, like being a talent agent, you used to have to literally be an attorney. And a lot of the best agents in Hollywood at, in the motion picture and TV fields all went to law school. Um, it, was a, it was a tradition that really came about 
early on in the development of the bigger agencies, but now it's less and less, you know, you just really need to have that pedigree and the ability to sell and um, a knowledge of what's coming on and then an attention to detail when it comes to contracts and the rest of it's just familiarity. I think, you know, in college, a lot of my professors were former ASCAP attorneys or people who dealt heavily in um, copyright and trademark acquisitions where, you know, they'd be responsible for managing the estate of an artist who just passed away that had a very rich body of work. Um, and they were, they were drawn to, you know, tell you what it was like learning these laws in law school. But I, I wasn't really, I wasn't as much drawn to deciding who owned what, you know, really just trying to develop artists. And that's really my goal was to help build talent from the ground up or even just take over after, even if they were already in the air off the ground. And I think that's, that's part of what just, and, I, and I'm, I'm just not the type of person to be able to be a, a decent attorney. I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want me as an attorney if I was an, if I was a musician, but as an agent, I at least, have that passion and, you know, the understanding of what one's rights are. But I just, something about being a lawyer never really appealed to me. Well, I think that's really interesting too, because, um, so I was a reporter, uh, I got in the music business as a, as a reporter covering the sort of the digital and tech side for billboard. I had a digital tech background, so I did not have a music background. So I kind of came into it really blind. I had no idea how much, um, uh, legal components there was to, to, to me to the music i mean I, I just i knew about the music business as a fan uh not from any kind of like school or other type of experience so i had a very quick education yeah. and and you know and in covering uh the space during a lot of um disruption right this was let's call it 05 through mm -hmm. like 2012 but you can imagine everything that happened during that um one of the things i noticed was that you know there there was so many people in the music business in positions of power and positions of decision um, that had more of that uh, lawyer background. And I, and I think I came up with a phrase that was like, you know, the, the music business tends to focus more on um, litigation than innovation. Right. And like, <laughs> like, like, you know, uh, because it, it was always focused on, okay, how do, you know, we have these rights, how do we exploit these rights? And when things are going sideways, we don't know what to do. Let's just find someone to sue. And that's how we're going to kind of make our money. And, and this is, this is a blanket term. And I'm not saying the whole business was bad as a result of this, but I right. saw a lot of that happening back then. So I, I would almost say, I, I bring that up because for someone who, uh, you know, consciously avoided that, um, I think that's kind of helpful because it allows you to look at a problem in a different way other than who can I sue, but more than more like, how do we, how do we innovate? How do we um, address this in a um, more practical way than just, you know, sue somebody? Yeah. Particularly, and I bring it up now. But I'm sorry, I'm talking far more than I normally do. But no. I think that, that let's use this as sort of a switch to talk about our current situation. Because normally, again, during the show, one of the first things they'll do is I'll just sort of ask anecdotally, hey, so how are you handling the current uh, lockdown situation? So as a booking agent of live shows, I'd imagine asking you whether you've been affected business-wise by the current situation would be about the dumbest question I can ask. So let's just get into how, how much you're being affected and how are you sort of been managing that sense. Uh, there's no such thing as a dumb question, but I, uh, <laughs> that might, that might be pushing it. I, I don't know. I mean, I, it all hit us like a ton of bricks and us as in everybody in our field, you know, no, no one agency did it better than the next. We're all just finding different ways of coping. And some agencies have a slightly, uh, stronger reserve to keep them afloat, or they may have, you know, stronger investment from the private sector to keep them afloat. I, I can't speak for all, but for my, my, my agency as a whole, 
you know, we had to make some very, very difficult cutbacks. We had to make some very uh, emotionally difficult and professionally developed uh, difficult decisions. Um, but I will say that over the over the months, we've really started to look at things more half full than half empty. You know, this has given us an opportunity to revitalize the way we do business and the way we operate as a company. And it's allowed a lot of our artists to start thinking outside the box for how they traditionally look at their careers and how they look at business as a whole. Um, you know, as, as agents, we've been able to direct them to new areas of earning revenue that they never would have even dreamt of before. You know, whether it's things like virtual events and ticketed live stream performances or, um, you know, things, things like what, what you guys do at royalty exchange, you know, taking a look at their catalogs and taking a look at, you know, where they're going in their futures and what can be done with this tremendous body of work that they've assembled over a 40 to 50 year career. There's a lot of different things that we've started advising artists on rather than just booking them shows like we used to. I mean, we did have a more managerial role in certain artists, but most of what we did was securing them shows and routing tours and things like that. And, We've been very, very fortunate to reschedule most of mo- most of the performances that we had booked that got canceled. And um, honestly, by now, if you would have asked me in March, I would have thought by now we would have been starting to go back to shows. But uh, as time has gone on, I would be amazed if we were back at shows by second quarter of 2021, based on what I'm seeing, at least as a whole. Um, there's going to be parts of the country that are going to come back yeah. quicker and then parts of Europe and other countries that are already on their way back because they've handled the situation a little bit better. Um but it's, it, I, I look at this in a lot of different ways, but I'm, I've been trying to watch less of the news and reflect more on the fact that, you know, my wife and I have 15, 15 month old baby girl at home and I've gotten to see her grow and learn how to walk and learn how to say dad, dad, you know, you can't get that when you're commuting into New York city every day. Um, it just, that's been a blessing. I'm not going to lie. That's great. It's been terrific. And I've gotten to spend more time with my wife and her family and, I just, I'm looking at it like that. Yes, it's been tremendously hard on us and our artists, you know, financially, emotionally on everything, but um, it's also allowed us to really change the way that we look at our business as a whole. And as we look at our artists business and advise them in a way that we never really did in the past. And I, I think that that's, there's something to be said about that. So I have, the, I've got a lot of questions now. Um, mm-hmm. So bear with me here, but so I find, I find this really, really interesting because a lot of people don't see all the work that goes, you know, the, the, not just the work, but just the realities of the behind the scenes, logistical processes of a live event. They buy a ticket, they go to the show, they have fun, they go home, they, they, they post about it on Instagram or whatever. Right. right. But like, so yet all these shows get canceled or postponed. <clears throat> and, and at some point we're hoping to, uh, uh, you know, re you know, rebook them in some fashion. But there's a number of realities that are happening that make that probably far more difficult than anyone actually realizes. Okay, one is you've got a whole bunch of people who want to tour that are all going to be competing for dates and locations once things open up again. For though, and that's just those that were already supposed to be doing touring this year, let alone the ones that had already planned. Um, dates and venues for next year right so now so you, you're talking about a bandwidth you know probably traffic jam essentially that's one two if we're going to go with this traffic analogy right two the lanes that they're able to drive down have been reduced dramatically particularly on the smaller venue end i would imagine that a lot of the traditional venues that you can actually get to 
many of which are going to be out of business by the time things open up if they haven't gone out of business already. So you're going to have more artists vying for um, a finite number of dates, right? There's, there's still the same number of days in a year, but just far fewer um, venues through which to book them. So can you talk a little bit about, first of all, am I, is, is that an accurate reflection of the reality of the, of the moment? And then how do you, you know, what are the unique challenges that that presents and how have you been navigating through them? Uh, it's, 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 yeah, well, it's to answer your question little by little. I mean, it's accurate. It's an accurate assumption uh, if things continue to go the way they do. And especially if these smaller independent venues are not getting the congressional aid that they desperately need, that they've been lobbying for for months, you know, with these organizations that are particularly directed at um, keeping these local venues alive that you know, are the core of the music business at the core of how we consume music and the core of how we, you know, how the artists we know and love developed in the first place. Um, so if they're not able to survive, then that's going to be a tremendous problem. Um, you know, when it comes to traditional touring, there's a lot of venues that we work with. You know, we, we have a roster of artists that cater largely towards a performing arts center style venue, you know, which means, venues on a college campus, locally owned venues, or lots of festivals, of course, um, you know, a lot of things internationally, you know, those venues may be okay, you know, cause they'll, they'll have the college supporting them or they'll have the local government supporting them, but they may lose funding for a couple of years because they're going to be low priority for a, an organization, especially a college that can't open its doors to students in the fall. Um, you know, so there's a lot of problems. Uh, we could spend all day talking about that, but, uh, We've we've rescheduled quite a bit of what was supposed to be in 2020 to 2021. So yes, that's going to take away quite a bit of what we would potentially be looking to book into 2021, 22 right about now as we look ahead to those times. Because if you're looking at it like a season, you know, like a school year type thing where it's the 21, 22 season starting in late August or September and going through May or June, like a school year, uh, that starts booking around now you know, late August into September is that was when these organizations start really looking to fill that time out. And a lot of that season has already been filled purely with cancellations and reschedules. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And that, that's, that's what I want to get into. So like, if you, like if, if you, if you were affected by the shutdown and you had a tour plan and you're going through the process of rebooking and rescheduling, that's one thing. If you didn't, and, and, you know, you just, you just maybe your new album finally just got done or, or whatever. You know what I mean? And now you're looking to start booking. You really are looking to, what, 22, 23 now? I, I think that, that with the amount of uncertainty out there, especially as venues get less and less sure, I think that's going to be a little too far. I mean, a lot of venues are reticent about even booking things for early next year because of how things have gone in the government. I think the biggest problem that we face as a country right now is that this pandemic is happening during an election year. And I think both sides can agree on that because we're not getting the same kind of action we would get in a normal circumstance. So when the election happens, no matter what the result, we're going to have some clarity about business in the future. Um, but even so, you know, I, I've got shows in Europe that I'm rescheduling into late 2021 where they're pretty sure that things are going to be back to normal by then because of the amount of cases that have dropped. And some of these countries are already starting to roll out a vaccine, whether we agree with it or not is is another thing. But uh, it, a lot of it's going to depend on what happens in November. You know, it, it really no matter who you vote for. 
As a growing artist or songwriter, keeping royalties coming in is important for keeping the bills paid. It's also important to keep an eye on those royalty payments. A lot of people we worked with here at Royalty Exchange were having a tough time making sense of the royalties they were getting paid. So we built a free tool called Know Your Worth that automatically analyzes every royalty payment made on your music. It breaks it all down in an easy to understand analysis with some insights that would be impossible to find elsewhere. Plus, it connects you with the thousands of investors on Royalty Exchange and allows them to make you offers on your music. So far, musicians have raised over a million dollars for new projects, new ventures, and a whole lot of other things just through the Know Your Worth app. If you're earning royalties, you should be keeping track of them, and Know Your Worth makes it easy. It only takes about three minutes to connect an account, and the tool will automatically update over time. Just visit worth.royaltyexchange.com or find the link in the show notes to get started. Now, let's get back to the interview. It just seems that the, that the folks that that the folks that 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 were either in the in the initial stages of of even thinking about uh, going out on the road, or you know whether it's just by their own natural planning purpose or just by the reality of where they are in their music release schedule, um, it, it seems like if you weren't already in the mix before this happened, that trying to enter the mix now seems far more uh, restricted. Uh, yeah. Just in terms of availability, like you just might need to sort of, hey, maybe it's time to write the next album before we start worrying about promoting this new one on on the road. I don't know. I mean, I, I, again, I, this, I just I know enough about how the inner workings work to understand that it's probably a mess, but I don't know enough to understand how that's being adjusted along the way. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it's it's really there's there's a lot of things that are not going to be the same with tr- traditional touring, which I guess paves the way for all the new ways of artists performing virtually. Um, right. Well, that's, is, I wanted to get into that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah so there's a couple of questions I had around the live stream side of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, I mean, just, just getting it up and, and getting it out there and, and, and keeping attention and engagement is sort of, I would imagine need number one, but very shortly after that is need number two, which is the monetization element of it. Is, or is, or can live streams come even close to, uh, providing the kind of uh, revenue back to the artists that uh, a live event would? Not at first. I think it's an incremental rise for smaller artists. I mean, there are some artists that are much larger that are doing great numbers off the bat just because they can and because they've got enough clout. But I think that it's not a get rich quick thing by any means, uh, especially now as the as there's a new platform for it every single day coming out that I hear about. You know, we we kind of hitched our wagon to this one platform from the beginning called Veeps that was started by uh, Joel and Benji Madden from the band Good Charlotte a few months ago, and we've been working with them, and they've you know, they've got all kinds of artists using the platform, like Brandy Carlisle uses it, and hmm. Liam Payne from One Direction is using it. And those artists are doing really really well when they get an audience buying virtual tickets to their shows because even if they sell it for $10, they'll open up the stream to, you know, five, 10, 15,000 people. So they'll do okay. And, uh, I think it's called Veeps. Yeah. V E E P S. That's, that's one. I mean, there's all kinds of them coming out. There's a a bunch of them out there. I haven't heard of that one. What, what, what about that one in particular is appealing to you? Well, it allowed a couple of different things. One, it allowed me to live out my childhood fantasy of working with the guys from Good Charlotte. And <laughs> in addition, it also, what, what their model has that none of them have is they let the artists keep 100% 
of the ticket revenue. The only thing that they're taking is a 15% charge on top of the ticket that the ticket buyer is paying. So if you're selling a $10 ticket, you're going to get every bit of that $10 and the and Veeps is just going to charge a buck 50 on top of that that the ticket buyer is going to pay. So the quote unquote and, convenience fee perhaps. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what it is that's that's covering well, like some, the streaming they, 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 and you know, someone's yeah. got to make money in order for it to happen. So I, I'm, right. not, I'm not knocking it. I just was drawing a Yeah. So that's how that one works. I mean, it's all all the streaming services are centered around a similar technical platform and it all was created and put to first use by the gaming community for many, many years. This is nothing new to them, but to the music people, it, it's a little bit new. We're, we're using the exact same software that the gamers have been using to broadcast themselves in their bedrooms. That same software is going to be used for broadcasting shows from any kind of a situation. And all so these then, sites, yeah. Yeah, so I have to ask you this then. I mean, that I would imagine it has to concern you a little bit because – um, you know, there's no booking agents in the gaming world, right? Like when, if you're going more into this, into this um, more virtual space, doesn't that somewhat disaggregate your role? And how have you, how have you been sort of thinking about that, I guess? It, it is something to be concerned about. But at the same time, I like to think of it as morphing my role rather than being just an agent, being somebody that can work with them in developing new business as more of a manager in certain areas. Um, there's always going to be an area where an artist can't handle all the business because an artist's job mainly is to create and obviously look out for themselves. But if they have an agent that really cares and is honest and good to them, that agent's going to make sure that whatever these artists do is every bit of it has their best interest in mind. You know, there's a lot of things that go along with streaming that a lot of artists can't necessarily figure out on their own, especially if they're an older artist who's never even heard of it. Um, you know, there's a lot of things where we still have a, a convenient spot at the table. Maybe there's a contract when it comes to the streaming where it involves negotiations, there's rights involved with these streamings and licenses that are required. And most artists are not going to know what it takes off the bat where their agent may be able to jump in and say, you know what, this is what you have to do. This is what you have to secure. This is what the split should be between you and whomever else you're promoting it with. That's the thing. I think that if an artist just promotes these shows on their own, they're losing a very viable option. But if they involve venues around the world, they then can tie in and uh, tap in, I should say, to a local resource that is coming from a venue who, you know, the people in a small town in Ohio may know that venue really well, but they may not know the artist that's coming from New York. But if the two partner with each other, that venue will be able to engage a local audience that that artist wouldn't have been able to engage on their own. So that's where I think the agents really have the most input in this is tying the two together and making sure that the artist is partnering with the right people. That's really, really interesting. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective, particularly on the, like, okay, with the live stream. So here's the thing about touring. And this is the thing that, that I mean, there's all these articles. Everyone's just, you know, I, I'm, I used to be a reporter, so I get it. You're just Mm-hmm. throwing out articles, uh, you know, at, at uh, on a daily basis. But let's think this through a little bit, right? Like on one hand, yes, a live stream from the living room works and it's engaging to your fans, but it's generally your existing fans. Okay. So that's sort of reality. A B uh, let's forget about all the technical requirements that involves. Okay. But this, yeah. this, let's stick with that. Right. B part of, if not most of the point of touring is to develop and, find new fans right is <laughs> right i mean that, that's kind yeah. of the kind of the idea and i don't know that live streaming necessarily um achieves that right um but it could through the through the what you just outlined i believe i mean is that kind of where you were going with that 
Yeah, and I think a lot having the venues again is a good is a good way of bridging that gap um, where you may say, "Look, you've come to know us as a local resource in your town for bringing you quality entertainment for many many years." Sorry about the residual noise, by the way. I'm recording outside. Oh, you're good. Napping. You can hear um, totally yeah, fine. so you know you, these people are relying on these venues locally for many years to provide them with great entertainment, and the venue comes to them and says, "We want to continue our mission from the comfort of your own home." And, you know, you'll by by buying a ticket to the show where you may not know the artist, you'll be supporting the artist and you'll also be supporting us and you'll be able to support us on a localized level, um, which is something that I think has been very attractive to venues we speak with because we're we're working with Veeps and a means of trying to connect them with venues rather than just artists. I mean, to be honest with you, I Joel and Benji Madden can do a whole lot better talking to an artist about Veeps than I can. Your sure. chances are you're going to listen to them. If you're an artist or even a bigger artist, you're going to listen to them over listening to me whom you may not know. You probably don't know. Um, but when it comes to a venue whom agents are calling day in and day out, whom we have relationships with, that's really where we come in. Again, it's always trying to find ways where we're still relevant because God knows a lot of people hate dealing with agents for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> we just, we have this tremendously terrible repu- reputation a lot of the time, um, which a lot of it's probably true, but I mean, I think that's really what it is, is you're, you're the link in a weird, weird abstract chain that's never had to be there before. That's really, and, and, and the, I guess the last point I want to get into that, the, to the, to the point you raised about the local venues playing a role is, is what you're, I, I can think of two ways that that, that, that happens, right? You know, one, it, it seems like for, for at least local bands that are, that want to do live streams, but maybe they don't have the right um, infrastructure, like the living room, you know, jam or whatever, isn't going to work for them while the venues can't be open to the public, they could potentially be open to the band who wants to go and live stream from that stage, even if it's an empty room, right? They're live streaming from the stage and you still kind of have that feel. And there was some, I'm going back to my reporter days. There was a lot of that sort of virtual stuff that, that used to happen. It would be the packed room. They have a big VIP audience and you know, whatever. And they play to this room for people that got in special, but the the broadcast was really for, for more fans. So that's, so a, there's, there's an opportunity for venues to maybe, I hate using the word monetize, but I'm going to have to, you know, their, their space and their venue by renting out or whatever that, that process. And if they had the infrastructure already there with the cameras and everything else that might, you know, put them in a better spot than others. So that's, that's one, but two, even if the live streams are still happening sort of more from the artist's location, right. Uh, home, whatever. It's like, you know, uh, you know, this band brought to you by this venue live stream. Right. So, cause, cause it's, a, it's that, it's that face of, for you know, th- through which brand is the fan most familiar? The band, if not the band, then perhaps the venue. Yeah, or or it could be done a lot more corporate wise, you know, or it could be done yeah. with, via not nonprofit that the a lot of people know about, where the artist may be helping the not for profit raise some money, and then the the organization is helping the artist raise awareness about themselves. So interesting. Or it could be tied in with a big corporation. I know um, a lot of the country people have done stuff with various beer or wine or liquor companies out of Nashville where they've sponsored the live stream and they've they've done a co-marketing campaign that's worked out really well. Right. And we can go on and on with this one, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it, it, like, once you kind of – it's always funny when you get into those little – the things that, that you wouldn't normally think about as a fan and you start kind of understanding that it becomes that little thread on the sweater that you can just kind of keep pulling. But I want to ask a different question um, before we move on to something else. Uh, last on the live stream stuff, you know, right now the live streaming component is emerging as a, an opportunity to, to fill the void somewhat. Eventually, and we don't know how long, but, you know, uh, you know, 
in the year or two, whatever in the future, we expect the touring um, situation, the, the venues and whatnot, to to return to a semblance of normal, where you you know we're, we'll be doing less of the live stream and more of the live events. But I'm curious now that we've done this, now we now that we've experienced this, does this change the the permanent future of how bands and live streams work? So I guess what I'm saying is, will live streaming be a more prevalent mix? along with live events, do you think, or does it, does it go, you know, go back to where it was before the pandemic? Yeah, that's where, that's where all the speculation is going. And that's what exactly. I would believe to be happen is that you're going to see a quite a hybrid develop with, uh, any venue that is open to doing it and they should, you know, festivals are going to start doing it more and more and just venues who may have had a small capacity to begin with that are going to have an even smaller capacity or at least a smaller turnout until people start feeling more comfortable coming out um, to shows, they're going to want to open it up to a virtual audience just to have as a possibility. And, you know, one thing that I, that, that just recently came out is that Vimeo partnered with Eventbrite because they want to be able to be a ticketing hub that's tied in and not going obsolete with um, those virtual tickets sold because it's, it's a potential threat to ticketing companies. If they're not able to keep up with, virtual tickets, they may lose out on, um, on some of the market share of tickets sold, which it was smart of them, you know, and, and it's interesting. One of the executives from, um, uh, Eventbrite is now working with Veeps and, you know, all these people are of the same mindset of where this is going. So I, I think you'd be smart to follow their lead and seeing what the hybrid is going to look like and be banking on that because chances are, when you buy a ticket, there's going to be multiple ticket options. You're going to have general admission, balcony, reserved, and then the virtual. You know, in the virtual, interesting. you could you could maybe only sell 200 tickets in your venue, but maybe able to sell 2,000 more that are virtual. So it's it's going to be wild and interesting. Yeah, I saw, a, I just, as an aside, I saw a video, I think it was somewhere in the UK of their social distance live event experience. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that. It was like all these like raised platforms. That yeah. Sort of had around. I'll tell you what, right now, if you were to create a magic pill that eradicated every disease possible to ever to get in the world, I would still prefer that. Oh <laughs> my a, God. As the 50 year old man who's like, you know, okay, I still want to go to the show, but I just hate all these other people there. You know, like that's, that's, <laughs> yeah. I would pay for that one. I'm just, that, that's just my grumpy old man. talking. No, I don't blame you. I'm the same exact way. I mean, having your own space with your own, you know, group that you're with is just, you know, I think live nation tried to do that with the drive-ins they were doing for the larger country acts. And it was cool. They had like a tailgate space, but that's very, very hard to manage right now, especially with the virus still happening like it is. But I love the idea of having your own little platform cubicle to watch the show where, you know, you bring a cooler, you know, and some, some wine and dinner and you just set up and have space to stretch out and watch the show. I'm, I'm all for it. I, yeah, yeah. as I get as older, we get older, and, our tolerance yeah. for the mosh pit slowly fades. You know yeah. I'm mean? a, and, I'm uh, a dad now. I don't, I don't like any fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I really want the social experience of a concert, but can we not have the other people? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so contradictory. All right. Yeah. So, um, Last thing I want to get to here then, um, you also mentioned, so we talked a lot about live streaming, but you also mm -hmm. mentioned earlier on, um, well, that's one alternative from an activity standpoint. You also mentioned some other alternatives just from more of a, of a business reality standpoint. You know, how do you, you know, maintain revenue in, in this day? So we talked a little bit about the live streaming component of it. Are there, you know, what, how else can a, an artist, um, so just sort of maintain their, um, 
business, you know, their, 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 their income, uh, if they had relied heavily on a touring environment to do so, like what other, is that an area of suggestions that you've had discussions with or you would care to yeah. talk about now? I mean, we, and I, and it's going to sound like you may have, uh, paid me to say this, but honestly, no? working with companies where you, uh, you may be able to control how your life's work is distributed and handled and may being able to, um, monetize your future earning potential on royalties. That's a big part of what we're doing. And there's a lot of companies that are probably trying to buy into it more and more on the day. But uh, a lot of artists are stepping into that role. And a lot of artists are finding out about royalties they didn't even know that they had coming to them. Um, again, which is all which is all a great part of what 2020 is bringing us. But, exactly. And, and yeah, this is not a royalty exchange ad by any means, but I always yeah. find it interesting that whenever there's a disruption to the music business, it's always amazing how quickly, maybe quickly is the, right, the wrong way of putting it, but like eventually, right? Uh, whether it's the artist, the songwriter, or the business people start to suddenly realize other income streams that they ignored before because they were smaller than the biggest one that they were getting. Like, it's like this myopic view. Like, okay, I'm making a bunch of money from touring. Forget about all that PRO income. Now it's like, hey, look at this PRO income. What can I do with this, right? And Especially when back to digital. Like, hey, I had, all these, yeah. I had all these CD sales. And now it's like, okay, like, uh, you know, so the pennies that got ignored start getting focused on and suddenly they become dollars. Yeah, I remember when Sound Exchange was really making its splash. Exactly. Uh, there was this like database of all this unclaimed money and artists would search and they'd say, "Wait a minute, I got I got, you know, $30,000 in royalties that I I didn't even know were there." Um because my stuff's been getting crazy internet play. And that that's an extreme example, but uh it's it's unbelievable. Back in the day, you know, one of my one of my professors um and in, in college was this old ASCAP lawyer who um he was a very matter of fact awesome awesome professor. But he used to, te- he said that back in the early days of, of acquisitions with copyrights and trademarks, especially in music, you had to rely on horrible things happening, which I hate to say is kind of what's going on now is a lot of people are in horrible situations. But back in the day, he said there were the four D's of copyright acquisition, acquisition which were uh, death, divorce, drugs, and being dumb, um, <laughs> which were the best opportunities to pounce on somebody's precious life's work. Um, and now it's become a lot less sinister and more opportunistic for artists and, you know, people who own these pieces of, of the creative work to go out there and earn, earn more on what has been existent for a lot of years. And it's not just taking a lot of these artists for a ride. It's not trying to swindle them. It's actually beneficial to them in a residual way. So that's a big one. I mean, that, and obviously trying to trying to encourage artists to use this time as a creative incubator to make more music is it's a given, you know, we really are pushing a lot of artists to spend this time to, you know, if you have a home studio, great. If you want to go into a studio and it's safe, that now is the time use this creative incubator for what it is. Exactly. And I think that, uh, you know, one thing that's also worth looking at sometimes, whether it's this situation or others is, you know, a lot of times when you're faced with a challenge and a problem, you're so focused on your own problems. Naturally, I mean, you should be, right? It, 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 that's just normal. But at some point, you could kind of take, maybe take a look around and, and, and try to figure out, okay, what problems might others be, uh, you know, experiencing as, as a result of the same, you know, environment? And how might my situation help them in a way that benefits me? And, and that's sort of a vague way of, of kind of pointing at what's happening right now. So, okay, you, you mentioned 
you know, a, a more sinister, you know, catalog acquisition sort of, you know, model of the past, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit less so now in the, in the respect that there are people who are interested, you know, investors, let's talk about, and I hate to make this, it sounds too much like an ad for royalty exchange. It's not what this <laughs> is about, but we're on the topic and I got to bring it up, which right. is basically that, you know, you, you do have investors who are now, um, challenged with a, an investing environment that doesn't have a lot of yield, right? The economic response to the pandemic has caused interest rates to drop, and that presents a challenge to investors who are trying to um, put their money into investments that generate uh, a return back to them that's basically getting lower. So they think, okay, where else can I put this? And one area where they could potentially put it is in music royalties because they generate the higher returns, essentially. Now, that's a demand-side um, problem that the that the uh, uh, pandemic has caused. So now you have this group of, of artists who might have royalties that are unable to tour, but not so, but that they have they have a solution for that other audience. And so that's just that's just the one that I see because that's what my business is. My point in bringing it up is not to just pimp that, but also say what other what you know what other um, opportunities are out there. You know, who else needs you at at this time, and how do you then capitalize? as a result to help you get through this situation, whether it's, I mean, Hey, maybe it is the live streaming, maybe the live streaming services will start paying some artists outside of ticketing just to get a big artist to use their platform to get their platform attention. I mean, you know, you could go in many, many, many different directions. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we were a couple of years ago, we were approached by those guys at cameo, you know, and now a lot of people are doing cameo stuff like where you pay, you pay an artist hundred bucks to send you a 30 second clip of them, just saying hi to you, you know, and a lot of artists are making money off of that, which power to them. It, it wasn't right for us at the time, but there's always going to be ways of making a buck. And just depending on how you feel about it, you, you can either choose to take it or leave it. And exactly, you know, there's a lot out there. There really is. All right. Well, listen, this has been a really interesting uh, conversation. I appreciate you coming on today. A couple of last questions for you. First of all, anything, any other major points that you wanted to bring up that I didn't ask you about that you think are important to express at the moment? Not especially. Uh, I appreciate you having me on and always good to have a conversation about this stuff as it transpires. I'm sure you and I would have had a very different conversation a month or two ago and it would be, <laughs> it would be very different in a month or two from now. But um, exactly. Yeah. I, I think that there's a lot artists can do and I think that um, it's just up to us to look at this as half full, even when things are absolutely horrible because <laughs> they are. Sometimes. Absolutely. So what, what's, uh, what's next for you? What's, what's coming up? Anything imminent that you want to note I don't know, promote or, um, or, or at least discuss, you know, no, I, uh, you know, my artists are working, uh, we're booking shows and we're, we're continuing to rebuild our team, uh, here at the company, which is very exciting. And we've rescheduled quite a bit into 2021 and 2022. And we're anticipating some great, great comeback after this is over. But in the meantime, you know, we're, we're sticking alongside some of these streaming platforms. There's a lot of good stuff happening with them, especially with the guys over at veeps. I don't say it cause we're, partners with them. I'm saying it because they're just terrific. Um, and they have a great service that a lot of artists have found great success with, but our artists are ready to work and they're excited to work when the time comes and artists are, are the lifeblood of how we enjoy life. So it's, it's really up to us to support them when, you know, the big, the big bad wolf won't. <laughs> okay, great. And finally, how do people, how do people, um, find you, follow you, um, online, socials, etc. Sure. So you can find more about my company by Coastal Productions on bicoastalproductions.com. You can find me on LinkedIn or Facebook. You can always email us at talent at bicoastalproductions.com or you could uh, email me jack at bicoastalproductions.com. 
Uh, I try, I'm trying to be better on Instagram. So, uh, if you want to find me on Instagram, Jack B Foreman, B as in boy. And yeah, just, you know, keep the conversation going. If you're an artist, we'd always love to hear from you. But if you're just somebody with a unique idea, please do keep in touch with us as well. Cause we're always open. All right, Jack, thanks so much for joining us today. Enjoy the Jersey shore. Um, and I'll let you get back to you, uh, your, your day and your family. Thank you very much. Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. To keep up with Jack and the Axe with Bicoastal, check out their social media profiles linked in the show notes. We'll be back in two weeks with another brand new episode. Until then, take care.